Okay, friends, and the story begins. We are on a new section of davening, a new section of the Siddur, page 15. I think I wrote on the text 14, but it's 15. If you don't know me by now, you'll know I'm bad with numbers. <laughs> okay, smack in the middle of page 15. We're starting a new section. If you notice, there's a couple of paragraphs on page 16, uh, 15 to 16. On the bottom of 16, there's a Shema that we say. This is not the part of Shema that we would say together with the minion in Shul. This is just a portion of the Shema that we recite, and it's preempted by a couple of paragraphs. You see what I'm saying? Um, I, I have a, actually a question on, on, that, on, the, mm -hmm. on that Shema, but I can hold off until we get to that, I guess. Okay, yeah, yeah. So these couple of paragraphs are a lead up to this Shema, but the question is, why are we saying Shema here? And why are we saying these paragraphs beforehand? It seems kind of random. We haven't yet recited the, you know, the main Shema. We're going to recite it later. So we have to go look back in history. About 1,500 years ago, there was some sort of anti-Semitic decree prohibiting Jews from reciting the Shema publicly. The Shema declares that God is one. And that was antithetical to the belief system of the monarch of the time. And it got to the point that they were sending spies and attendants to synagogues around Shema time to make sure nobody's saying Shema. So the Jewish people at the time came up, or actually the sages of the time, came up with a solution. We'll say Shema earlier. We'll say it at home. We'll come to Shul for services, but we'll say the actual Shema portion earlier. As long as within the proper time frame, it doesn't, it, you know, technically doesn't matter if it's said earlier or later, as long as it's within the time frame, we'll say it earlier at home, and then we'll come to Shul and we won't say Shema. They don't know that we said it earlier. But so, as a, so, yes. so a, a, just a question on that alone, um, doesn't that imply that at some point after that, the Shema was reintroduced, like, because it's in the chakras, right? So yeah, um, at some point later. Apparently that decree lasted for like a good five years. Ah, okay. Yeah, good question. Good question. So as a preface to the Shema, they wanted to recognize that we're out on the run here and we kind of have to hide our Judaism. So take a look on page, uh, middle of page 15. It's towards the bottom of the page, but it's the middle paragraph. A man, or really in, in Hebrew, it says Adam, a person, should forever be God-fearing in the innermost recesses of his heart, acknowledge the truth and speak the truth in his heart. Let him rise early and say the following. Okay, we'll get there in a second. But as a preface to this Shema, we say a person must be, uh, uh, translations again are limiting and a little bit dangerous. Let's refer to the Hebrew for a second. We're going to translate it literally because the English gives a beautiful translation and it works. It's a meaningful translation, but let's look, look at the little tra literal translation, which means forever. Yehei Adam, a person should be, God-fearing or heaven-fearing, Baseser, in a hidden place, when hiding. Literally, it means we were hiding our Judaism. 
right? Because we had to hide our Judaism, we weren't allowed to say Shema. Let us make sure that we're at least going to have Yerushamayim, the reverence for God, at least when we're hiding, if we can't do it when we're in public. Umode al ha'emet. Concede to the truth. Acknowledge the truth. V'dover emet bilvavo. Speak the truth in the heart. Literally, even when we're hiding, we have to, uh, or e even though we can't acknowledge God publicly at the time, we still have to do it while we're hiding. That's a reminder. Now, for us folk who don't need to hide our Judaism, we're often compelled to hide our Judaism, probably, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, given, given various circumstances. But our safety, bottom line is in the U.S., our safety is not being threatened by being Jewish publicly, certainly not as it was 70, 80 years ago, certainly not as it was 1,500 years ago at the time of this decree. Why are we reciting this prayer, this prayer now? And the answer is the word seiser, hidden, could also mean be God-revering even when things are, even when you're hiding, even when you're in, by yourself, even when you're by yourself. It's easy to act God-fearing while in public. It's easy to act God-fearing and even to, to get in the mode when I'm in shul or when I'm at a Jewish event, when it's Yom Kippur, when I'm inspired. But what about when I'm home and it's not a particularly inspiring day? It's not any particular holiday. I didn't just come from a class. I'm just eating dinner, eating lunch. I could still be God-revering. When I'm sleeping, I'm under my covers. I'm by myself. I'm in my own deep thoughts. I can still be God-revering. I can still center what my existence is truly about. I can still acknowledge the truth. I can still speak about the truth. So if you take a look in this week's Torah portion, I think it was yesterday's portion. There's a, one of the many mitzvahs in this week's portion is the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name. Which means if we have the opportunity to do a mitzvah, even if it's going to come at the uh, at a personal expense, a big personal expense, but it's going to sanctify God's name, we got to do it, right? A kiddush Hashem, and the verbiage that the Torah uses is v'nik dashti, you shall sanctify me, I shall become sacred. Betoch b'nei Yisrael, amongst, betoch amongst the children of Israel. Again, translation, that's the literal translation. But again, translations are limiting. There's another meaning of the word betoch, within. Not just amongst, but within. God wants to be sanctified within every single Jew. Within the depths of all of our hearts. So what we're saying here is on a literal level, even when you're hiding, make sure you're God-revering. But the deeper meaning is, even in the depths of your heart, in the places that are hidden that nobody sees, nobody knows what you're thinking, we should still be God-revering. The way we do that 
is two steps. Number one, if you keep reading, it says, acknowledge the truth. Know what the emet is. Know that there's an objective right and wrong, not just a comfortable and uncomfortable, and that's laid out by the Torah. Know that God is the truth. God's values are the truth. But then more importantly, vidover emet bilvavo, speak the truth in your heart. Because the more we speak about the truth, not just acknowledge it conceptually, but say it to ourselves, the more we're going to experience it. And that's exactly what the um, structure of davening is. The structure of davening, the sitter, is literally an opportunity to speak the truth that we've acknowledged our whole lives, but to say it. We're not saying it to God. When we're praying, we're not just talking to God, although parts of prayer are talking directly to God, but a big part of prayer, you know, God has a healthy, healthy self-esteem. What does he need to be praised for? We're speaking the truth so we could better experience it. We can better feel it. We acknowledge the truth. But if we want the reverence for God to be experienced in the depths of our hearts, to be, for God to be sanctified within our heart, we have to actually articulate it. And the sitter is a beautiful structure that enables us to, to do that. Okay, before we move on, any questions, thoughts, comments? Controversy. Okay, let's take a look at the next paragraph. We... Again, give, bear in mind when reading this paragraph, the historical context, Jews were prohibited from recognizing God publicly. So we said, nevertheless, acknowledge the truth and say it in your heart. And then we beseech God to help us. I'm going to read the entire prayer. It just goes from the bottom of page 15 to the top of page 16. I'm going to recite it. Uh, we'll, we'll say it quickly. Master of the worlds, it's not because of our own righteousness that we present our supplications before you, but because of your abounding mercies, right? Why are we... Uh... Hold on one second. <laughs> we we'll interrupt this program. <laughs> Okay. My father used to always tell me, don't ask God for what you deserve. Right? God, you owe me one. Never say that. Never say, God, you owe me one. We never want to ask God for what we deserve. And the truth is, it says that in Jewish law, when, when praying to God, don't say, God, I deserve this. Because God knows what we truly deserve. God knows our faults, perhaps better than we do. And I'm not saying that we need to overly focus on them. But we're not asking God to help us on our own merits. Right? It's because he's merciful. Right? Keep reading. Look at line number three. What are we? This is a very humbling prayer. My mic is on, right? Okay. What are we? What is our life? What is our kindness? 
What is our righteousness? What is our strength? What is our might? Any resources we can turn to, how uh, that, that, that we have, any um, merit that we might have. Our kindness, I could have been more kind. Our righteousness, I could have been more righteous. Our strength, my strength is limited. My might, that's also limited. What can we say to you, Lord our God and God of our fathers? Are not all the mighty men as nothing before you, the men of renown as they had never been, the wise as if without knowledge, and the men of understanding as if devoid of intelligence? Michael, I can't say, God, I'm very smart either <laughs> because my intellect is quite limited as well. Any resource I'm going to turn to, I don't know if resource is the right word, as the night gets later, my vocabulary just shrinks. And then when I have morning classes, I tell the morning class, as the morning, my vocabulary shrinks. No. <laughs> there is a book called Chavot Halavavot, Duties of the Heart. Sharon, you're a fan of this book, right? The Gate of Trust, Shara HaBetachon. You've quoted it before. Um, I love that book. It's awesome. It's awesome. The book Chavot Halavavot is Duties of the Heart. There's various sections that describe, you know, Talmudic law, for, and, and, and the Talmud and, and the area of Jewish study for, for generations has been studying how to do Judaism, the practice of Judaism. But there wasn't much work on the emotional obligations of Judaism, which are just as important. How to love God, how to revere God, how to trust in God. So there was a book called Chavot Halavavot, Duties of the Heart. And one of the sections of Duties of the Heart is called Shar Havetachon, the, great, the Gate of Trust. This has been the Jewish um, antidote to anxiety for generations. It was written in, in medieval times. It was actually originally written in Arabic, eventually translated into Hebrew, now translated into many other languages, including English. And it's been the Jewish antidote to anxiety because, you know, trusting in God is, is essentially, he writes in the introduction, the core to any relationship is trust. The core of our relationship with God is trust. But any relationship, there's no trust, there's no real relationship. But if you're thinking somebody's going to stab your back <laughs> in any relationship, whether it be marital, whether it be financial, a, a business relationship, a teacher-student relationship, a therapist-client relationship, there always needs to be trust. And what he asserts in the introduction is, well, you're going to trust in something. We always trust in something. That's human nature. We always put our trust in something. Why not put our trust in God? Right? We, we don't question the pilot when getting on the plane. We trust him. We, we, have, we, are, we have tendencies to trust. Even the most cynical or paranoid of people, on some level, find areas that they trust. In the introduction, he challenges and asks, wait a minute, where does our security come from? want to feel that's what essentially what trust is i feel secure right when i trust you i feel secure with you so when i trust god i feel totally secure totally confident that is the ultimate confidence if i'm confident in life because i'm financially stable money comes and goes if it's because i'm strong 
unfortunately, health can come and go, God forbid. If it's because I'm smart, there's always going to be people smarter than me. I could always get the COVID brain fog, <laughs> God forbid. So where does true security come from? It's from God. That's the ultimate security. And that's essentially what we're saying here. I might be righteous, but what is that worth? I could have been more righteous, right? That my ultimate security is, is really in God. Um, let, let, let's keep reading this. this pair, pair. Actually, I got to tell you a story. I just read this story today. Fresh off the press. Several generations ago, um, maybe a century and a half ago, there was a rabbi named David, the, the Tolner Rebbe, Rabbi David of Tolna. He was a Hasidic Rebbe. If anybody heard the, uh, they, they lived in Ukraine, in Chern near Chernobyl. They, um, he was an ancestor to the, I don't know if ancestor is the right word. Yeah, an ancestor to the Twersky family. We heard of Rabbi Twersky, passed away a couple of years ago, a year ago or two years ago? Two years ago. And they came from the Tolna Chassidim, from Chernobyl. Tverskis were from Chernobyl. Somebody came to the rabbi. Yes, yes, the fish love guy. Yes. Rabbi Tversky was a, um, besides for being a Hasidic rabbi, was also a psychiatrist, a doctor, and um, speaks a lot about relationships and speaks a lot about different things. Somebody came to Rabbi David, to the Rebbe, to this Rebbe, and says, I'm in deep poverty and I need a blessing for wealth. So this Rebbe was not your average person and could see things that other people didn't see. That's what a real rabbit does. And he points to him. He says, see that building? One day that's going to be an inn and you're going to own it. See that building? That's going to be a store. You're going to own it. That building over there, it's going to be another uh, factory. You're going to own it. You're going to be quite wealthy. But on one condition, you need to give to me 200 ruble. Sounds like a scam, right? You need to give me 200 ruble. <laughs> what? <laughs> this sounds fishy. Some rabbi is predicting something that is, but I got to pay money. <laughs> sounds like a cult almost. Like it's, it's like, I only have 200 ruble. <laughs> Perfect. Because I don't make change. No, <laughs> I'm kidding about that. <laughs> oh, it sounds like eminent, eminent, multi-level marketing. Perfect. <laughs> this is this is what happens. He gives him the 200 ruble. Years later, everything the rabbi tells him happens. He owns an inn, the exact same spot. He owns a factory. He owns a store, and he's raking it in. And he decides to become a devoted student to this rabbi and actually learn from him. And he says to him, Rabbi, I don't understand. You gave a blessing that matured into, uh, you know, uh, became reality. What did you need the 200 ruble for? You made it sound like a cult. <laughs> I almost didn't believe you and people thought I was nuts. 
See, he said all of these blessings were waiting for you. But there was idolatry in your house. You had to get it out. Idolatry in my house. What are you talking about? That 200 ruble. Why was the 200 ruble idolatry? Because you thought that security was came from 200 ruble. You were thinking so small, and you thought that that's what was going to make you secure. It was God that was going to make you secure. As soon as you were willing to give that up and trust in God, all the blessings were able to come through. You know, we, we in this prayer, we're asking ourselves, what is our true value? Okay, our ultimate value is the soul. And we'll get there in a second. But without that, if I assess my own righteousness, my own might, my own kind, they're all limited. There was a rabbi in the 1800s, Rabbi Moshe Sofer. He was the chief rabbi of Pressburg, known as the Chassam Sofer, Chatam Sofer. He had an attendant, um, almost like a secretary. And the secretary um, was quite arrogant because of his position as the secretary to the chief rabbi, Pressburg. The secretary was a nephew to a very wealthy person as well, to a wealthy philanthropist. I get that right? To a wealthy philanthropist. Say that six times fast. He was his nephew. And he's quite arrogant. I'm working for this prominent rabbi. I'm the nephew of this wealthy person. And Rabbi Moshe Sofer puts him in his place. He says, what are you so, what are you so proud of? Right now, you're as knowledgeable as the rabbi, you, you're as wealthy as the rabbi you work for, and you're as knowledgeable as the philanthropist. <laughs> if it was the other way around, you would have something to brag about. <laughs> he put him in his place. Um, the point is, what we're doing over here is we're essentially humbling ourselves, putting ourselves in our place. Uh, take a look on the bottom of the page, the last line of page 15 for most of their deeds are not and the page 16 days of their lives are vanity before you the preeminence of man over beast is not what makes us better than animals right if our life is just about our strength about our you know animals are strong if it's about our kindness you have animals that are kind if it's about our um intellect you have animals that have intellectual intuition as well what makes us different than an animal if our life is just about breathing, if, if, our, if our life is just surface deep? Except the pure soul, which is destined to give an accounting before the, floor and the, the throne of your glory. The true value comes from the soul. That's the ultimate, um, the ultimate greatness, if you will, that we, that we have. Let's not look at our deeds and plead before God and say, this is what I have, so answer my prayers. Let's come before him humbly and say, I have a soul. All the nations are as nothing before you. As it is written, the nations are as a drop from a bucket, considered no more than dust upon the scales. Behold, the isles are like flying dust. So with what merit do we have to come and pray before God? 
if it's not our strength, if it's not our wisdom, if it's not our righteousness or kindness? The answer is the next paragraph. But we are your nation. That's the answer. With what are we standing before God? It's not our own merit. Right? We aren't asking God for what we deserve. <laughs> because that's quite limited. We have human limitations. What we're asking God is, we're your nation. We are your people. The people of your covenant. You made a covenant with us. You made a promise. In other words, God, I'm not telling you I deserve this. I'm telling you, you made a deal. <laughs> Whether I deserve it or not. There was a... Rebbe, known as Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, the Ruziners. Anybody heard of Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin? The Ruziner Hasidim. Say Ruzhin three times fast. Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin. I'm going to say, I mean, lived less than two centuries ago, just to give historical context, like as most of the Hasidic. At the time of his... Uh, Life in his lifetime, there was a big famine in, in the uh, Ukrainian area that he lived. And as we know, there's always tension between the borders, as there is now. And because of the political tension, there was a food shortage, as there is now, similar to what we're going, you know, what they're going through now, right now with the wheat shortage. There was a food shortage and there was a famine. And people were starving. And Ukraine at the time did not have world support as it does now. <laughs> The world uh, was, was a lot bigger, ironically. So you know what he did? He got together 10 rabbis and created a Beit Din, a rabbinical court. And he said, we're taking God to court. Because the Torah refers to the Jewish people as the servants of God. And a master has to feed his servants. If a master is not feeding his servants... The master has to go to court, and the court is going to rule. You got to do it, right? The Midrash tells us that any mitzvah God commands the Jewish people, God fulfills on some level. Um, often it's going to be more uh, metaphorical because God is not a physical being. But he, they take make a bait din, and they say, we're summoning God to court. God, the Jewish people are your servants. You got to feed them. The next day, the borders open up and food comes in. The, the, the point why I say this is because what we're, we're beseeching God not on behalf of our own merits. That's not what true confidence or trust is. Real trust is not, God, I deserve this, so I feel confident. It's, God, you made a deal. We're connected with you. We have a soul that is part and parcel with you. So I feel confident. I have reason to, be, to trust, not because of my own merits. I have reason to trust because I'm stuck with you. <laughs> you made a deal. You promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like we read uh, the, in, our, in the last couple of sessions about the binding of Isaac. We are children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll conclude with one more story. 
Mr. George Rohr was a uh, wealthy philanthropist and big supporter of Chabad, still is. If you look in all the JLI marketing material, the Rohr family, uh, he ran a minion somewhere in Manhattan for Jewish youth, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And got a lot of Jewish people involved that this minion got them to celebrate Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And he told the, he gave a report to the Rebbe. He said, we had uh, however many people at our minion, and these Jews, none of them had any Jewish background. And they came to this minion, these Jews without any Jewish background came to this minion. And the Rebbe looks at him. He's expecting like a pat on the back. And the Rebbe's looking at him. No Jewish background. What are you talking about? Give me no Jewish background. He says, yeah, they, they don't have a Jewish background. They weren't, you know, they weren't raised Jewish and they didn't. They do have a Jewish background. No, they, they, they don't. Of course they do. They're all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Rebbe essentially was telling him that our Jewish heritage is not just what we know. I'm not Jewish because I know about Judaism. Because I've studied or because I've learned or because I'm practicing. It's just who I am. It's not just what I do. It's who I am. And that's why, you know, circling back to the first two-liner, three-liner that we said on page 15, a person should always be God-fearing or revering in the innermost recesses of his heart. It's part of who we are. It's not just what we do. We therefore acknowledge the truth. We therefore speak the truth. And the reason is because we are your nation. We are your people, your covenant, part of your covenant, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.